Matthew 17, 7. It's just one verse. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. So I was on the phone in 2009, when, which is a long time ago, uh, when I asked, would you say you are more interested in the pursuit of truth than truth itself? And I had many reasons for asking this particular person, person the question. Looking back, it does seem kind of rude, maybe. Um, but I don't know, maybe I was onto something here. Um, and I think sometimes churchy people can get pretty distracted by all the churchiness, like just doing the thing over and over. And I believe Kyle used to say, he called it churchianity is maybe the word, like a church culture. And I think that's, that's a thing, if you've grown up around the church. Churchianity, I would say, is a real thing. So in an effort to try to avoid that, maybe sometimes ministries or churches, they'll try to find ways to make the church interesting again, or kind of rebrand things, or to try to avoid cliches. And all of these things are bad, but it is often subject to trends, uh, especially in more evangelical spaces, less denominational spaces. Sometimes we withdraw, or other times we really press in hard in an attempt to make church into something perfect. And I guess what I'm getting at is, I wonder if people are more interested in the pursuit of God than they are in God himself. Like if we were to actually meet him today, the rush maybe would be gone. <laughs> maybe, maybe it would just be terror, I don't know. But the endless mystery, the pursuit, where we're all really, was it all we were really interested in in the first place? Perhaps they were worshiping the hunt or just the culture surrounding the main event. Or they just wanted to feel profound, I don't know, or known. They're not all bad things, but they are versions of churchianity, I suppose. So the person on the other end of the phone that day was a celebrity pastor named Rob Bell who was an influential leader of a large church in Michigan called Mars Hill. Uh, not to be confused with Mars Hill Church of Mark Driscoll fame. Uh, and his answer um, wasn't very compelling. And I'm not even gonna tell you what it is, but the question is, would you have a compelling answer to that? Are you more interested in truth, the pursuit of truth, or truth itself? So last week we looked at a scene of Jesus on a boat with some disciples. He was asleep during a fierce storm and the disciples wake him up and ask him for help because they're all about to perish. Jesus stops the storm, he points to their lack of faith and then reassures them. So today we don't find a sleepy Jesus, we find sleepy disciples. And I think it is a perfect picture of how we tend to treat Jesus. It's when it's an emergency, we're like, God, where are you? But when he leads us on a journey to reveal himself, maybe we fall asleep in boredom. We tend to want Jesus to be more like a genie, is the way people often talk about this. Maybe more than we want him to be God. So we avoid the relationship part of things, possibly. Maybe we avoid the worship part of God. We avoid that he is, in fact, God. <laughs> Not just a means to upgrading our lives or answering questions. So let's jump into our passage, the broader context for today, which is in Matthew 17. 
It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was sleeping, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But, God, or, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And I'm gonna read just a tiny snippet of the version of this story in Luke, because I think it helps shape with some details. Luke 9 says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in the glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then it says, he did not know what he was saying, which I think is wonderful. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So as we see in our passage today, Peter, James, and John are led by Jesus up onto a mountain. Not exactly sure which mountain it is. Scholars speculate it was Mount Hermon, uh, which is like one of the most majestic peaks in the area, about 9,100 feet above sea level, very high. So only days before this event, Jesus had just told disciples things like, whoever wants to meet my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life, life for me will save it. So that's a big one. And whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So these are the kind of things like a week before that were, going, that were ringing in their ears still. That is the backdrop for this story, which is called the transfiguration. So if you're the disciples, this is probably, probably isn't like the best time to fall asleep, right? But here they are, the inner circle of Jesus, just tired, like exhausted. They get to the top of this mountain, and then boom, it's revelation. 
So this weekend serves as a conclusion to our little epiphany series on the ways that God reveals himself. And our focus today will be on this, that God wakes us up and lifts us up. He wakes us up and he lifts us up. And I'm not just talking about how maybe you feel groggy right now, of course, uh, or maybe your mind is already this afternoon to the Super Bowl and like Little Smokies and Taylor Swift clips and all that. And actually that sounds amazing, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, but I'm saying that God reveals himself by awakening you to your realization of both his identity and your own. His spirit illuminates your mind and heart and says, it's me. But then he gives us dignity. He sees us and extends love and acceptance. Okay, so back on the mountain. We've got a sleepy Peter, James, and John, and we've got Jesus, and then we've got some fireworks. Matthew 17, verse 2 says, there, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Here's the way it reads in, in Luke 9. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And my favorite description is from Mark 9, which says, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And for some reason, I like to imagine, Mark, that there's some sort of subtle, smack talk toward his dry cleaner here, like some ancient version of Zach Anderson really pissed off Mark and had to make a little snide comment about Jesus being whiter than any dry cleaner could bleach something. Anyway, the point is that disciples are up on the mountain and it's time to pray. And remember, they are with the Son of God on a mountain and they're falling asleep. So like if you really, truly, if you ever fall asleep at church, Cut yourself some slack. It's all right. Actually, no, don't do that. No, no, not right now. Wake up. Wake up! As they're praying, Jesus is transfigured. The word in the Greek is metamorpho. Metamorpho. Sorry, I had to think about that for a sec. Which just means to change into another form, like metamorphosis, right? Uh, butterfly. Um, caterpillar. That type of word. So Jesus' appearance is transformed, and he absolutely explodes in brilliance. Lightning, white as light, dazzling white. Clothes are, that are whiter than Zach Anderson could bleach them. This is like supernatural level brightness. Jesus is pulling off the veil for a moment. And he's like, y'all, it's me. I'm God. <laughs> this is pretty obvious at this point. I'm the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised Savior. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm who you're searching for, wondering about, crying to, it's me, it's me, I'm God. And then Elijah's and Mo Elijah and Moses just appear, which would have been miraculous in the first place, right? That would have been enough to have this story. So things are really cooking, and I'm imagining the angels are just like eating popcorn, like, oh man, it's happening. Here we go. So Malachi 4 four through five sort of alludes to this, just a tiny bit, a little slice, almost something you'd miss. In verse four it says, remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So there's some speculation about why these two figures are the ones that appear at this event, but they do seem to represent the work of the law and the prophets in some way. So there's a passing of the baton going on here for this Jewish audience. Jesus comes to complete the work of the law and the prophets, or fulfill it, and some see this more like Moses representing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, and Elijah representing the coming prophetic age at the end times, and Jesus serving as the foundation that sort of undergirds that salvation history that is being written upon. So one commentary gave it a bit of a tongue-in-cheek name that I really liked. They called it a, a Salvation History Summit Conference, which I thought was dorky and kind of fun. So whatever the case is, their presence only confirms Jesus' claims and authority. His messianic claims to the disciples are really, they're starting to stack up now. So the events on the mountain are similar to Moses' own mountaintop experience, if you can kind of put your brain back into the Old Testament. It's as if Jesus here is a type of Moses, you could say, a new deliverer. Typology is something that just assumes that, that what God has done in the past helps to frame or interpret future or current events and people. So Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the law is actually foreshadowing Jesus here. Right? This is something that an author would connect the, begin, the beginning and the end or various parts of a story. It's intentional. So in Exodus, Moses gives up Three, or brings up three named people with him and 70 elders. Jesus takes up three disciples with him on the mountain for the transfiguration. Moses' skin is shining after talking with God. Jesus is shining radiantly as well. God appears in a cloud in Exodus, and he does so in, tra in the tr transfiguration. A voice speaks from the cloud in both stories. People are freaked out by both Jesus and by Moses when they're shining, right? And remember, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. God is starting to bring these seemingly loose and disconnected strands together in the person and body of Jesus at the transfiguration. He is truly human, and it turns out he is truly God. So let's jump back in to what I'm calling the sassiest of all gospel accounts again. Uh, this one in Luke. It says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure when he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Okay, so this is like really gold from Luke. And he's really telling it like it is. He's kind of brutally honest. So Moses and Elijah show up chatting with Jesus about what's about to come. They're discussing everything that's about to go down in Jerusalem and how Jesus will uh, leave after the resurrection, perhaps. And then Peter and the boys, while this is all happening, are falling asleep during the prayer meeting, right? So they're breaking all the churchianity rules already. They wake up and they see a miracle taking place before their eyes. So they witness the glory of God. 
the glory of Jesus revealed. And Peter, perhaps still delirious, seems to suggest that they construct some temporary huts, maybe in allusion to the festival of booths, which was something that the Jews commemorated. So these so-called booths, temporary dwellings, were used by farmers during harvest. They're also similar to shelters that the Israelites constructed during the 40 years of wandering in the desert after the exodus from slavery in Egypt. During the festival of booths, people would eat meals inside them and even sleep in them. So I don't want to take too many liberties with the text here, but I think it's kind of like Peter wakes up just really out of it. Like he is maybe still kind of asleep. And I think it's so much so that Luke includes the comment that he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? So there's something like, whoa, Jesus, Elijah, Moses. It's almost like he's not surprised. Like he's so groggy that he's like maybe half dreaming. Like I'm so stoked that you guys are here. Let's build some huts, right? He's very out of it. And then we can just, like a, was that? A Mojo Dojo Casa House. That was in Barbie, right? Let's build a couple of those and just like chill. No, it doesn't happen, but I do think he was really out of it. So you have to, you have to imagine a sleepy Peter. So we're back to Matthew's account. Jesus has just revealed himself in light. And just like the Magi and the star, God is leading these men and leading us today with light. Matthew 17, again, it says, Peter said in verse 4 to Jesus, Look, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So we see a mirroring of the language of Jesus' baptism, if you can think back to that that we talked about not too long ago. God the Father, again, affirms his son as his own, and his love is clear, and it's declared. He also envelops these disciples in his own glory, a bright cloud. This is what some traditions would call the Shekinah glory of God, which is just an expanded uh, transliteration, meaning like it's just a word that's not even really a word. It's like smushing some syllables, some words together, but trying to say it in English. A transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means to dwell or to reside, which is interesting because it starts to sound a little bit like those huts that Peter was excited about. So the Shekinah presence of God is often associated with manifestations of his glory, especially in contexts where God is perceived to be physically present or revealed in like a tangible way. And that is epiphany to a T. That's like what the word is about. Right? That is what this season is about. And then God interrupts the stammering response of Peter with his radiant glory. So I was thinking about this, and I thought, isn't it true that sometimes God reveals himself by interrupting us? <laughs> like our plans, our neat and tidy answers, our pictures of him, 
our posturing to ensure we look good in front of others, our prayer services, maybe church right now, who knows? And remember, Peter isn't alone here. He's with James and John. This isn't some like personal moment of nirvana he's been pursuing. These guys, they're not exactly at their best. But I like that. I like that that's in the story. And you see how significant that is? That just, it shows that the power and the glory and the majesty and beauty of Jesus are not dependent on our performance. The revelation of God is his choice, ultimately. Not something we manifest. This really is on God. The revelation of God is something we awaken to. Sometimes it's like a splash of cold water, maybe like here. Sometimes it's like the slow rise of the sun. But either way, it's something we are given as a gift, which means that the presence and revelation of God are expressions of grace. Often when we think about grace, people will talk about or they'll immediately imagine forgiveness. And forgiveness, I would say, is a form of grace. But that assumes that a wrong has been done, or there's some sort of perceived wrong at least. So that's grace, but it's not only that. Grace is more broadly uh, maybe defined as like unearned favor, but also can include the power of God both at work in us and throughout creation. So grace is unearned favor and the power of God both at work in us and through creation. God reveals himself by his grace. And he has invited these three disciples to witness something they did not know was coming and they did not choose. And while these guys weren't like employees of the month, right, I do think there's some, we should give them some credit. So don't miss this. They were there. <laughs> they showed up. They were there. They did the thing. They were on the mountain. They followed Jesus up to like a 9,100 foot mountain to pray of all things. They had no idea what was about to happen. That there would be one of the most historic moments of Jesus' life and ministry and of humanity itself. They didn't seem to have ulterior motives. It was just them and Jesus. This was not flashy. It was not newsworthy. They had set themselves to seek God. And by physically following Jesus and by setting aside dedicated time to pray. The way we talk about this at Gateway is that we're present to God and that we're present to one another. I really love that. that we're present to God and that we're present to one another. Jesus interrupts his own prayer meeting to reveal himself in glory, to signal his kingship and the kingdom of God. What these guys are witnessing is the king of light and life just like peeling back the veil of normalcy for like a moment to give them a glimpse into just another reality. Now, I don't expect Jesus to like bodily show up at our next prayers of the people service at Gateway. It's possible. But I, I really do expect his spirit to be there, just like I expect his spirit is here with us now. And it's why we gather at all. His spirit is what binds us together as the body of Christ the new temple on earth, a tabernacle, if you will, a booth, a bunch of little booths. This is not churchianity. We want to know God. 
And he offers himself freely. And from this place, we extend the good news to others that God is a God of justice and of grace. And from that, we serve and love and sing and everything else. So Peter, James, and John were sleeping on the job. And yet they were there. And that was enough that day. God woke them up. Peter said some nonsense. But even that didn't stop God or Peter's story from being defined by it. So here's my question. When was the last time you failed, maybe you failed really hard, trying to do something good? Maybe you fell asleep at a prayer meeting. I don't know. Maybe you're asleep right now. I guess I, should, I could have looked around. Peter didn't know what he was saying. And at one point, he denied Jesus. And years later, he was swayed by anti-Gentile sentiment. And yet, this is the type of guy that Jesus builds his church upon. According to Catholic tradition, St. Peter's the first pope. So when was the last time you stepped outside of your comfort zone to try and serve someone in the name of Jesus and risked failing or prayed for others or whatever it is? I think as siblings in Christ, we can urge each other and give each other grace that we don't have to be perfect. We don't expect perfection. It's okay. None of us have this all figured out. You don't pronounce failure upon yourself as your new identity when you fail. It is normal. It is a normal part of discipleship. It shouts, I'm learning, I'm trying. And that's a recipe, I think, for God to reveal himself. I don't think it takes much. So I remember the first few times I tried leading worship at church. And I'm going to be honest, I was terrible. And I knew it. And I'm still not that good. Uh, but I did it because I just love to worship God in song. And I like doing it with other people. And there was a need. And so I did. It's okay. Like, it wasn't the best thing of all time. But it was real in my heart, and I think it did matter. There are plenty of things I say no to, probably most things I don't even consider. But sometimes God puts something in your path that is an obvious yes. And I would just say, step into those moments. Walk up those mountains. Go and fall asleep listening to a preacher. It is okay. You were never there to prove something to someone else in the first place, even God. It's not a competition, it's not drudgery, it's not obligation, none of that. No sense of compulsion. This is not a call to busyness or shame. These are things we reject emphatically. I, and I wrote in my notes, no, 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 no. <laughs> Just for myself. But now I said it out loud, I guess. But before we get back to the passage, my question, my follow-up question rather is this. What is God inviting you to say yes to? In your life where he's been prompting you to show up physically emotionally in your habits your relationships your schedule whatever it is where is he saying make your mistakes but make them with me so years later Peter would reflect on the transfiguration in this letter he lays out that truth that truth is something that he wants the early church community to be both rooted in and pursuing that is to say, he is interested in both the way we pursue truth and that we find it. His answers, I think, are compelling. 
But his life is ultimately more compelling. Also in his reflections, he begins, or he mentions that a tent, he brings up a tent, a shelter again. But now he has in view that this shelter is our body, his body. He has learned from Jesus that there is something else going on here, that our bodies will be resurrected, as the Apostle Paul reflects on elsewhere. And that our bodies become the temple or dwelling place of God. And that he connects the glory and majesty of Jesus to the message given to the apostles. The voice of Jesus is expressed through his people and through the scriptures. Here's what he said in 2 Peter 1, reflecting on the event, the transfiguration. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established them in the, in the truth you have now. Firmly established in the truth you have now, right? So there's a sense of both pursuit and being rooted. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were, uh, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is listening, he's open, He's sustained by Jesus, so much so that it gives, he gives this image of the prophets being sort of like carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, the journey, it does matter, but the destination does too. As he said, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, back to Matthew 17. It says in verse 5, while he was still speaking, so we're back on the mountain here, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God the Father implores these disciples to listen to Jesus. It's not just like a comment from a suggestion box, right? This is the God of the cosmos enveloping them in a cloud on a mountain telling them to listen to the son of god just as he's been transformed into like a glowing lightning man in front of them and i wrote in my notes y'all this is the definition of serious <laughs> right this is serious god it's like okay you have my attention if you're in that situation and what does he say he says listen to jesus now, what do you expect will happen next? Jesus is going to be like, that's right. What's up, boys? There's a new sheriff in town. Time to crack the whip. Oh. 
Matthew 17, 6 says, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, understandable. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I think this is such a beautiful picture of just the gospel, a picture of grace. The disciples are rightly terrified. And hear me, that is like a reasonable response, right, in this situation. Being terrified isn't always a bad thing. Like, people seek that out. Uh, like on uh, jumping out of an airplane. What is that called? Uh, skydiving, I had to think, jumping out of an airplane. Or uh, amusement park rides, or like uh, going to the bathroom at a rest stop, or something, you know, something really thrilling and terrifying. Uh, but for, for real, the correct response is terror in this situation. It's like staring an alien right in the face, right? That would be terrifying, at least it would be to me. Maybe I'm just a scaredy cat. Reasonable terror, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus came and touched them. He said, get up, don't be afraid. It's as though Jesus cuts right through the intensity of the moment to say, hey guys, it's still me. The power of touch is profound especially that of Jesus. And it shows that Jesus is still physical. He's touchable. He's still Jesus. Get up. Don't be afraid. So friends, these are the words that I hope you walk away with. Beginning uh, this Wednesday, like I mentioned, we move into a season of Lent leading up to Easter. Lent offers us an opportunity to examine our lives individually and collectively as a community, to repent of sin, to renew our commitment to living a life faithful to the teachings of Jesus. It's a time for self-examination, confession, seeking reconciliation with God and other people. And sometimes people practice like spiritual disciplines, intentional things like fasting and prayer and so on. It's a dedicated time to cultivate a spirit of humility and dependence on God. But here's my encouragement to you, whether it's life or Lent or whatever. Don't avoid things only because you might fail <laughs> or at least feel like a failure. God can work with so little, like faith the size of a mustard seed. And those are Jesus' words, not mine. Just plant that seed and tend it. Sometimes you're gonna have like a moment like Peter or you fall on your face, or you have no idea what you're doing. Maybe that'll happen a lot. That's how I feel up here sometimes. Or maybe you'll really mess up, and you'll end up in tears. It turns out Jesus is a wonderful person to cry to. Let, I would say let the tears flow. Let the dis disappointments happen. Let the embarrassment and confusion and doubts and anger be communicated. And then listen. Get up. Don't be afraid. Let your terror find a home in Jesus. Let your terror melt into thanksgiving. Let your assurance rest in his reassurance. Let your answers find their end in his own answers. Let your image reflect that of him. Get up, don't be afraid. God wakes us up and he lifts us up. To close, I have two quick things. I would say 
as a community, I would love for 2024 to be a year that God wakes us up. I don't even know what that means. But maybe you do for you. That we hear the words of God and we hear, listen to him, and we say, okay, I'll follow you. You have revealed yourself as God, and we want to act accordingly by ordering our lives in a way that makes sense with that reality. And that's something the Holy Spirit will lead us in individually and corporately as a community. And then lastly, what if 2024 was a year we heard God's invitation to get up? to not be afraid, that we, as we move about our days, that we remember that God loves us, that he gives us dignity, that we work from a place of grace, and that we rest from a place of grace, that we speak and pray and are kind and serve from a place of grace and gift. And it's from that place that we begin and attempt anything at all.